RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. With me is Tanner. What's good, Dusty? How you been? Gaming's what's good. Yeah. But no, how about you? How, how have you been? I've been great. Um, we're uh, we're going to be talking about an adventure that's a little bit different to the ones that we've been running in the past today, which I'm excited about. And um, I think it's sort of a genre that's near and dear to both of our hearts, right? Absolutely. So Professor Thalden is Dead is the name of the adventure. Don't bother Googling it because it's one that I wrote. I will link to it in the show notes. Uh, I did write it in HTML to, to fit kind of the the system, which is books and bullets by a guy named Ray Otis books and bullets is a lasers and feelings hack, but it's meant for like investigation type games. And I've got a huge soft spot for like the Cthulhu mythos as do I. And I really wanted to run a Cthulhu type game. I wanted to run an investigation and I thought this would be ripe for these one-on-one games that we were doing. People are going to hear this podcast and think, what a weird departure from from the games Dusty and Tanner have been playing. This did not feel like a departure at the time. No, it did not. Because when we started playing together, we thought we would try lots of different systems. Like, like part of our premise, like when you reached out to me and I reached back out to you to say, hey, let's do play. It was, I've got two shelves full of game systems behind me that I've never played. And I want to play some of those. And you wanted to play some stuff. But this was meant to be like, I've wanted to run books and bullets for years. And I was by God going to do it with Tanner. Yeah. And I'm glad, I'm glad we did. It is a, um, a sort of departure. Uh, Have you ever played a lasers and feelings hack before? I never had. I've seen lasers and feelings. I've seen the hacks, but I wanted to try. And maybe I should have tried as a player first, (laughs) but, uh, but no, I, I absolutely had not, and I, I think it showed. <laughs> yeah. So just uh, as a quick background for the system, um, you pick a number, uh, in this case, a number between two and five, and a high number means you're better at matters of the intellect, books, and a low number means that you are a person of action, bullets. And you roll a number of D6s, um, depending on your circumstances, and you're trying to roll above your number if it's a bullets action and you're trying to roll below your number if it's a books action so literally that's the whole system and then if you get like on the number you get some special insight or something like that but that's the basics of the system pretty easy i mean it fits on a pamphlet could really fit on a note card you know what did you think about the system kind of going into this dusty i thought it would be just enough to sustain a session but nowhere near enough to sustain a campaign which i think is is true yep but I think it did an okay job of running a session. I think there were things that I could have done better if I were more experienced that I would not burden the system with. I don't find the system to be inherently incredibly flawed. It's great for what it is. You just need to know what it is. Yep, yep. It's hard to say something is flawed when it fits on a pamphlet. There's not much to it. So, you know, if you're stretching it to something else, it's not necessarily on the system. It's just a a, a consideration you have to take, right? Absolutely. Yeah. D and D or, and it's many flavors and derivations are great for emulating a low fantasy novel. 
This would be great for emulating a Cthulhu Mythos short story. Right. Or maybe like a, a cool procedural TV show that we never got or something from NBC, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I was up front with you that I hadn't run an investigation before and wanted to try it. And boy, did I learn a lot. Yeah. I, I think I think learning a lot's a theme. I am a huge fan of the old show Columbo. I subscribe to the Peacock streaming service specifically because I love Columbo and I love watching Columbo stuff. And I thought it'd be so fun to combine Columbo with some like 80s Cthulhu stuff. Yeah. And run an adventure. Yeah, I've seen Columbo. I'm not like a Columbo stan like you are. Um, I don't subscribe to the Columbo streaming service, but I do love procedurals. My dad would always have Dragnet on. That That's a show. Um, but, you know, s- other similar stuff sort of of the era. And then obviously like the modern stuff too, like gets a lot of uh, flack. But I mean, like Law and Order, very watchable. You know, every network has their own kind of procedural type stuff. So investigation type games are near and dear to my heart, but so is the media that they come from, right? Be it Cthulhu stuff or sort of television serial uh, investigation type stuff. Yeah, so you kind of hinted at it before, but this was set in the 80s at Miskatonic University. What kind of drew you to that 80s kind of college setting? Did you watch a lot of 80s college movies when you were a kid? (laughs) I didn't. Actually, when I first started buying Call of Cthulhu books... And one of the first books that I ever bought was the Miskatonic University source book. And there's just something about that book that I love. It's such a good setting. I just, I love Miskatonic University, Tanner, is is the short answer to your question. I had run a game set in the East Texas University, which is based on Miskatonic University. I did that in Savage Worlds with my group, but I had never run true died in the wool miskatonic so by god i was going to do that yeah this is a connection that we i didn't know we had but back in the same era that you were getting into role-playing games 2007 2008 2009 i had the fortune of going to gen con in 2008 one of the first sort of non D things i got i'm holding it up to dusty but this is the call of cthulhu role-playing game the d20 version I've never played it, but one of the cool things that this circles back to your sort of love of Miskatonic and uh, of 80s stuff is that there's a really awesome section in this book. It was a series of plot and campaign hooks for setting your game in any decade in the 20th century. And I thought that that was just so cool. I love the idea of setting Lovecraftian stuff sort of outside <laughs> the 20s, you know, because that definitely kind of pigeonholes you into a certain type of setting and game right that's awesome so yeah um 80s i wasn't born in the 80s i wasn't even alive for any of the 80s did it show (laughs) when we were playing this (laughs) no i think for me the fun of setting things in the 80s is hey it's pretty much like today people speak the exact same flavor of english um the only real difference is no cell phones so no get out of jail free cards on like calling for help or looking things up so prepping a mystery, this was your first mystery investigative type game. What what did your prep look like? I've spoken a lot in the past about sort of what my 
model investigation is, but you kind of went into this with a very specific structure in mind. Is that right? And I didn't follow any of the things that you usually talk about. And again, that showed. So in the pamphlet, and we're saying pamphlet, right? Because books and bullets, what it really comes on is it fits on three eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. When I say three sheets, I mean, you know, three sides. So you could print it on two pages, one front and back and, and one front. So I've printed two pamphlets, um, the player's guide and, and the mythos master's guide. And they have the sample adventure right there in the pamphlet. They have this adventure called what happened to Walter Blackthorn. Uh, everyone who plays books and bullets, you play as a member of the esoteric order of nameless sensitives, kind of a paranormal investigation group. And this, what happened to Walter Blackthorn adventure is really just a checklist. It's a checklist of, let's see, literally 12 bullet points and each bullet point are, they're called keys and you're meant to start at one particular bullet point. And then as players do different things, you can branch out to other bullet points. So I followed this exact structure in making my adventure. I did it in HTML instead of on a pamphlet. I wanted to be able to expand into my keys to have like stuff pre-written. So I wouldn't be improvising so much. But I use the exact books and bullets structure. Yeah, it's always, I mean, there's a million different ways to run an investigation, right? And it's always, I think it's good to kind of look at the one that the system you're playing is kind of advertising. Because, you know, intentionally or not, the author of the system had that structure in mind when they were writing the game, right? There's no perfect way to run an investigative type scenario, despite what I may have said in the past or other people <laughs> have said in the past. So it was easy to lay out, but how was that for running? Terrible to run. Terrible oh. to run. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so here's the thing about mysteries. I think investigations are so much harder to run than a dungeon. Yeah. With a dungeon, you, you lay out a location and you populate it. And I'm being a little bit reductive, frankly, because there are people who lay out wonderful dungeons and terrible dungeons. But I think overall, you lay out a dungeon and, and, and it's a place and there's factions, and there's monsters, and there's things to interact with, but there's no story, and the players imbue it with story. Yep. I think it's easier. I think an investigation is hard because something happened. This one thing happened, and you're trying to figure out what happened, and it's a puzzle, and I've always found puzzles very frustrating. I don't think of myself as an idiot, but when I'm confronted <laughs> with a puzzle myself... I'm always like, it just feels so artificial to me. Like, okay, yeah. someone kind of invented this and now I've got to figure it out. And it just seems kind of, kind of silly. And these murder mystery dinners, my wife and I have gone to a few of these and I have, a, I have a foolproof system for solving those. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, sure. It's always the best actor. Oh, <laughs> what, what 100% of the time it's the best actor. That's but hilarious. I, I find the clues that they're saying in their lines. Like I find it opaque. Like I'm supposed to remember like who it's, it's all completely opaque to me. So I don't enjoy playing investigations, but I thought I would enjoy running one. And I think there's such an art form to laying out the clues in a way that's not frustrating and opaque. And I don't think I've done it. And I think I would want to read now that I've had this one adventure where the, to answer your specific question, sorry, Tanner, I'm rambling. The very linear structure that I had laid out didn't lend itself well to this idea of 
tugging on a thread and pulling apart the tapestry. It didn't lend itself very well to that. It just felt kind of like, okay, you're talking to this NPC now? Okay, completely different section, completely different questions. You're starting all over again. And you didn't get to take this one thread and keep pulling it. Um, We have this later in the notes, but we should maybe just talk about it now. The fact that fundamentally an investigation works different at a role-playing game table than it does in a TV show or in a book right um and i guess i think that's kind of what we're getting at here so in a tv show there's always like one clue or one thing that happens 80 percent through the episode that gives them the answer and they're able to put it together and maybe as a as a viewer you're a little bit confused but then when they confront the uh the suspect it becomes clear to you and it's a big reveal for the suspect and for for you as the audience that that's not how role-playing games work right and especially in this adventure, we were never away from my character, right? My character never discovered something off screen. There was one clue for this adventure that basically the whole thing hinged upon. And it would have been great if Columbo found it 80% of the way through the episode, but I really had a hard time finding it. And it was kind of the crux to the, the adventure. So, you know, maybe, maybe that has something to do with the layout or maybe that's just the nature of the, the medium of a role-playing game versus a TV series. But I don't know. I think, I think there's a a lot of different directions you can kind of go with that. What are your thoughts? No, I agree. And, And again, going on the, what happened to Walter Blackthorne kind of sample mystery. Um, there is kind of one, point where you're going back in time like here's what happened and you can kind of work your way back there and i think it's it's laid out more elegantly than i gave it credit for like when i first looked at it i had lots of hints but then i had the one real physical clue the person who did in fact kill professor thaler you know it was in their car in the engine compartment which was hard to figure out it was exactly the same thing in the last episode i said i didn't want to deal with which was a needle in a haystack trying to find one thing in a big dungeon yeah and it's exactly the thing that I find annoying about dinner theater. And then I did that to you. <laughs> I'm not offended. Um, listen, we I've run very terrible investigations too. Uh, no, this one isn't bad. I, I want to say that sounded like a backhanded compliment. I, I think that this, this game was like, it was fine. It was like good. We both learned some stuff. We had fun. Investigation could have been better, right? So as a learning thing, it was a total success. <clears throat> but yeah, just the kind of it coming down to the one clue it just introduces a lot of points of failure. You know, the idea of those three clue rules or investigation conspiracy or whatever, all these other tools that other RPGs have and other people have come up with is to try to make stuff redundant, to try to make lots of avenues valid because fundamentally Columbo, he's following a script on the TV show, right? There was no chance that Columbo wouldn't find that because it wasn't written in the script, you know? And as we know, good rpgs aren't scripted so it's um yeah it's always it's always going to be a friction and there's no perfect way to do it but i don't think that this was a bad game by any means the one thing that was really interesting to me that was a departure from the types of games that we've played so far is the number of npcs and the interactions between them i'm just looking at the uh your your prep notes here so besides thalid who's who's dead who i didn't really talk to there are one two three four four major npcs that are kind of suspects um what was that like running four different characters four different personalities four different agendas you know 
Yeah, I, I had kind of notes to myself that I jotted down even outside of the HTML for like how to play these characters and how to think of these characters. So I actually put a, a lot of prep into this. Like I wrote that whole HTML page. I, I styled it. It looks, you know, completely amateur as HTML goes, but I put a lot of work into that. I put a lot of work. It into looks like a cool GeoCities page. It does. It looks like a great <laughs> Geo. Lots of lots of lots of lime green on black. Yeah. Um, but it's that's my that's my aesthetic. I love it. It's terrible, but I love it. But I put a lot of work into that. I put a lot of work into like I, I had gone back to work at this point. I, I had gone back into the office from work from home and on the car rides to and from the office, I was like practicing being these characters. Commutes are like the shower for me, where some people say they do the best thinking in the shower or on the toilet. For me, it's commutes. I just like I'll put on music, get my brain spinning, and be like, Oh yeah, this, this, and this. All of my best sessions, I think, have been stormed up within a 30 minute commute <laughs> these npc personalities and mannerisms and things that they said came from the commutes and i put so much prep into embodying these npcs to make you i knew it would be an npc heavy talking heavy game i knew we weren't killing goblins i knew there wouldn't wouldn't be a fight or very unlikely so by the way that was also a mistake you can't do a system called books and bullets and only do the books part. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a learning for me that we didn't have in our show notes. But I focused on that so hard, and then I just really didn't structure the investigation well. But it was it was a lot of fun. Did you find the NPCs? My goal was that they would be distinct from each other. That you would know who you were talking to. Like if you kind of zoned out for a minute and zoned back in, and I'm talking, you'd know which NPC it was. Did I achieve that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I can't say that I like related them to people in my life, but you had Dr. Tannis, you had Marcus and Lauren who were a couple together, and then you had Tristan who was kind of your your dumb jock buddy, right? Um, and all of those, I mean, those are such stock staple characters that like it works. Like, I'm not going to say that they were like the most breathtakingly well-realized three-dimensional characters because, you know, they were side characters. They were a supporting cast in my episode of the TV show. Right. And like the ability to sort of just relate those to different types of people you've seen in media before, whether it's like, Oh yeah, I know this character from Buffy or saved by the bell or persona five or something like I had a, a little bit of a mental picture for each one. And I think that you really, really succeeded on that. Cause that is, that is hard. Um, any sort of investigative or talking heavy thing, like God, I'm like, like I'm thinking of like my worst days of running L five R and having a winter court with like 20 NPCs. It's like, dear Lord, like that, that's not a, it's not a way you should live your life, <laughs> but you know, like narrowing it down to this, this, uh, this cast of characters, there's four NPCs, there's me, there's a dead body. That's just like the sort of sweet spot where all the characters are distinct and both you and I could keep them separate. I think with two or three suspects, it would have been too small of a pool. And with more than four, I think it would have felt bloated. I think we both would have been struggling. Absolutely. One of the things that I was proud of, I knew that Books and Bullets by itself wasn't enough. I knew that, and by the way, I did use Bullets a little bit. Like if you, I'll link to my adventure and you can see if you break into the keys that that Bullets for me was like physical evidence, whereas, sure. and then Books was obviously all the investigation stuff. But um, I bolted this, this system on 
to books and bullets because I knew with one person versus a group of players, it would be hard. And I knew you could miss the clue if you didn't have a reroll chance. So the way I structured the investigation, and I told Tanner this beforehand, is I said, hey, you can talk to everyone and interact with everything. And then once you do that, the cops show up. Once the cops show up, you can pick three things to interact with again. And flavorfully, the cops are helping you ask questions more aggressively so that you get different answers. Mechanically, it's an excuse to have rerolls, but to limit the rerolls to like three things. That way we kind of keep the adventure moving. And then after those three interactions with rerolls, then you had to say who you thought it was. That way the adventure just didn't like drag on, drag on, drag on into analysis paralysis. Not that you would have done that, but I was trying to proactively prevent that. Yeah. I think that worked really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that you did that was really smart, I think um, if if uh, another GM were to do this, they might say, okay, you know what, Tanner, you're playing one thing. There's no chance to re-roll on investigations. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you three re-rolls that you can use for the whole session. That is a very different proposition than talk to everybody and then pick three things again that you want to investigate, right? So by not doing something as simple as saying, yeah, get three re-rolls whenever you want, it made it so you kind of forced me to pick through the breadth of everything before I decided what I wanted to investigate again. And I think that's very, very smart. I don't know if you did that consciously or not. That's such a better way to do it for, for the structure of the scenario, I think. Yeah, and I, I was thinking through kind of cutting the content down so that I, I, I knew I didn't want a second round of talking to everyone. I knew yeah. that you wouldn't find that engaging, nor would I. And I thought there's a good chance that whether they actually were shady or just you picked up on some shadiness, that for sure out of all of the things that you interacted with, the four NPCs plus you know some of the physical evidence, like that would have counted if you re-rolled on that as one of the three interactions that there would be stuff that you would want to engage with again and get another crack at. I do want to poke one hole in this though, this, this idea, I think it worked great for this session and this scenario. How would you do this for any other scenario? Just having a second chance with the authority. So say, say we were doing a very typical um, 1920s Lovecraft adventure, right? There's a weird body. It's dissolved in ooze. You're a, you're a private investigator coming to take a look at it. You get involved with stuff and we're playing one-on-one -on -one, and by golly, I missed like three rolls and I didn't get the clue. And so in that scenario, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. How do you get that sort of second round, second chance set up for that type of adventure i think it only works for this type of game with one player where you don't have three other players rolling simultaneously and you getting kind of the balance of who who made this roll and who didn't that for me is the very specific scenario where this widget works in a broader Call of Cthulhu game to answer your question where the body's dissolved into ooze and, and you're trying to do all these other things what I would have instead there is a different timer. It would be the monster. And once mm. the monster awakes, it's going to kill everyone. So you are motivated to like move the adventure along yourself. And I would give you like a number of rounds or a number of turns before you know that, that things start, start to fall apart. That's how I would handle it in a group game. In a one-on-one -on -one game, 
that's more Call of Cthulhu with some physicality, with some running, some jumping, some dodging, some getting away. Uh, it, I think I do the same thing. I think I do a timer. I think this type of thing where you get to reattempt three things, it fits this genre beautifully because it's it's the notion of hey, I question everyone at the scene, and then a couple days later, I bring a couple more people back downtown yep. to question again in an environment where it's my home turf and I'm mm. going to get some better stories. I think it really only works here, but that's okay. Cause this is the only place I needed it to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think all that, that's, that's very smart. And it's one of the, maybe, maybe a lesson to take from this is that if you're going to make a, a sort of a custom tool or widget, as you called it for a scenario, just make sure that it fits the scenario before you start using it in every scenario. Right. The, the whole, like you have time for three questions thing. I kind of, I do that with my group too. The first couple times we ran investigative games, I would straight up tell them sort of the structure of what my prep was of like, there are these characters and they are connected. You should follow clues to get to other characters and then put the knowledge together and figure something out. Like having just a quick out of game chat about your expectations and what the structure you're working on. Like, I don't know you somehow making that artificial and immersive. I don't think would have done either of us any favors, you know, like sometimes it's fine just to say, I guess that's a running, this is a running theme on your show that metagaming is cool and it works, right? Yeah. Sometimes you got a metagame. I think, I think you should feel free to play with the mechanics of the games that you're playing. This idea of like a, some mythical group that gets so immersed that they forget that they're playing a role-playing game. I think that's some weird ideal that this hobby has, and I don't think anyone has ever done that ever, truly, you know? So like, just play the game. It's a, it's a role-playing game. Engage with the game. It's like a good conversation with your friends. You have your friends over and you have a great conversation and you leave feeling, you know, closer to, I don't know, Bobby than you have in years because you had this great conversation. And then you invite Bobby over again a few months later and, you know, the background music's off or you picked the wrong thing to watch on TV or you ordered food and the food wasn't good or Bobby's in a weird mood and he's complaining or you're in a weird mood and you're complaining and it doesn't go as well. It's so fragile. Yeah. This is just as fragile. It, and frankly, this is more fragile. This is more fragile than hanging out with Bobby because you, now you're hanging out with Bobby playing. I mean, this is kind of a weird game. Yeah. <laughs> these, these games where you're interacting with, with <laughs> you're, you're together interacting with imaginary people, places and things. It's weird. Yeah, and, and I, there there is something to be said about sort of stepping into the magic circle of, of, of fiction and, uh, and you know, not being self-conscious about it, but maybe that's just me and you who came to this hobby at a certain time that I think we do still have this sort of self-consciousness about it, maybe deep, deep down. But yeah, like you said, it's 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 weird. And the fact that like you acknowledge that you're playing a game isn't some great evil or it's not the sign that you've messed up or anything, you know. Random question. Who's your favorite fiction like novel author? And, and I'm and I'm specifically talking like popcorn novels. I'm not talking like you know, James Joyce. Oh, um, the last book that I read that really blew me away was the The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Oh, that's cool. Um, for me, this is a ridiculous answer, but I'm going to answer it anyway. It's a fan fiction author. It's a guy named Ben Hutchins who goes by Griffin, and it's it's ridiculous. And I'm not recommending that anyone read it. Um, I think it's well written, and I think it's good. 
But here's why I like it. When you buy novels in the store, editors and committees and market trends have watered it down. Yeah. And when you read fan fiction or, and the name of the wind is a great example. You read Patrick Rothfuss and it's an indie author kind of doing his own thing and like having a real strong voice. It's a little unhinged. (laughs) It's a little weird. It's not the formula. It's not the Starbucks coffee or the McDonald's hamburger. It's a little unique and it's not always good. Sometimes it's bad, but you have to get the bad to get the unique. And that's why I love role-playing man. You come up with your own unhinged story that does not have a three act structure. It does not have a satisfying, you know, mirroring effect where the last line's like the first line. It does not have the five paragraph layout. It does not have themes. It does not have symbolism. It doesn't have any of that stuff. It's just kind of a crazy series of events that sometimes has enough magic in it that you're making memories together. And that's a lot of fun. This one got really deep. This has got deeper than I thought it would for this uh the session. But well, there, there there wasn't a lot to say about the actual game except for <laughs> I ran an investigation without having read a lot about it. And that's a point I would make too. I would not run another investigative game until I read Gumshoe cover to cover. Uh-huh. I read, you know, there, there's, three a, there's rule. a three clue rule. I read the conspiracy. I would read that stuff cover to cover and take notes like I was prepping for a college paper. Yeah, before I ran another investigation. And I think that unfortunately for this, it sounds so daunting and I wouldn't give somebody the advice to do that necessarily, but like, I think investigative games are hard. I think you could roll you. I mean, you could go to the back of the OSE book and roll a random number of rooms and stock those rooms with random creatures and roll random treasure and have a decent B minus game, right? A, a nice six out of 10 game, but like with investigative stuff, like there's a certain threshold of work you've got to put into it that separates it from being truly terrible to like pretty good to okay to, or, or really good. You know, like the, the line between terrible and okay is like, <laughs> like so much prep work and there's no easy way around it. I think. Yeah, so not the type of thing that I would want to run every day in and out for week after week, you know, for a weekly game. But, you know, if you have time to think about it and you have time to prep and you have a commute to think of cool characters and scenarios, investigative games are great to sprinkle in every once in a while. Absolutely. So in conclusion, investigative games are hard. (laughs) That's it. Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.